They're uh, not noticing. They are. We have an audience. None of them are here for us, and they are actually relieved that the microphones haven't been turned on. I was here earlier <laughs> talking to someone who was just on the other side of the curtain there, and I actually had to leave because I was getting a headache because it was like someone was yelling right into the microphone. Huh. So. Um, so we're being nice. We're being considerate. I think we're being considerate. I think like <laughs> if I go after and talk to the person, like, hey, do you know we just did a panel? You like. I was able to sell stuff and not get interrupted. That's uh, right. That, that's right. All these people in this row, they must be thrilled. Oh, yeah. They were speed dating in here. Oh, is that what was... And somebody was scream speed dating? Yeah, it was... <laughs> it was horrible. Uh, anyways... Um, scream dating. Yeah. But the, the kind of nice thing is we can be a little less performative for an audience and we can actually be more kind of cut and dry about comic stuff. Right. Uh, where we don't necessarily have to get into, like... Uh, I made notes like thinking how much we'd have to talk about hate and stuff but we don't really need to at all it's just me and me yeah. and the internet that's true and uh, it's here we are at a convention with about what 50,000 people were here this weekend oh I have no idea and it turns out you're the only person that wants to hear me talk in the whole building oh I, I've got some friends that were very excited to uh, oh sure and they gave me their money now they now they're leaving me alone. Everybody's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. Um, now, it's been quite a while since we've talked, and I'm thinking last time was when I came to your house to do a video interview. That unfortunately, the person who I did it deleted all the footage. Okay, so That's big waste of time. Your footage and about ten other video interviews that we've done. Good grief! I who is this scoundrel? Just leave it alone for now. Oh, okay. We, we've had words. Simon Hansel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't do anything wrong. I'm from Tasmania. Uh, yeah, we'll blame Simon. Um, and in that time, uh, kind of what you've been focusing on has, has shifted quite a lot, where at that point you were doing a lot of, like, really specific kind of modern culture. Did you see the jacket we were performing before? Did you see a leather jacket by any chance? No. No, sorry. Um, there's no leather jacket. The mystery of the leather Not jacket. In my bag now. Um, so at that time, a lot of stuff you're doing is really like social critiquing, pop culture critiquing, like the video game stuff um, and technology stuff. And since then, you've started your series uh, for Drawn and Quarterly on kind of iconoclastic uh, feminist icons. Is that a good way of putting it? Sure. Yes. Not well. <laughs> Well, feminist, not, not up in icons. front. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, that is true. Well, you know, they're, you know, well, yeah, they are feminist heroes, I guess you could say. But that's not how they thought of themselves or sold. I mean, yes, they did think of themselves as feminists, but that they didn't wear that on their sleeves. It also wasn't necessarily the language of the time. Either. Uh, the word was used, and they did, especially the woman that I'm writing, uh, that I just finished a book about. 
Rosewilder Lane, especially in her younger days, in the 1910s, she would self-identify as a feminist, use that term. But, but she would describe herself as an author, first and foremost. She was a writer. Same with Zora Hurston, was a writer and an anthropologist. And Sanger was a birth control advocate. So basically that's how they all would have um, mm-hmm. described themselves. When you, what was kind of the impetus to start this, this kind of bigger project? Because it's, it's not an easy thing. Like the, the Hurston book is, it's actually not a long book. Uh, but a lot of it's significant uh, footnotes, not footnotes, but like vignettes that tie together. Oh, the okay, yeah, the end notes. But I mean, I also want to kind of differentiate it between your end notes and the Chester Brown made a uh, note at the back to read the end notes. Well, Chester Brown's end notes are kind of from another world. Yours are uh, a compliment. Yes, it's to that was long. I'm sorry. Right, because in. Uh, with the comic part of these stories, like with um, Margaret Sanger, she suddenly would be interacting with like Emma Goldman, um, John D. Rockefeller II, <laughs> people like that, um, and uh, and that was so. They'd say their names. I'd introduce them in the comic, but in the comic, you don't want to explain who they are. That would yeah. just kill the story. It would just kill the flow. But uh, I can't assume, because it would be a false assumption, that the reader knows who all these people are. When I told people I was doing a book about Margaret Sanger, most people, including people who went to college, said, uh, who's Margaret Sanger? I was a little surprised that uh, how few people knew who she was. Myself included. Yes. So uh, so if they don't know who she is, um, then i got a lot of explaining to do with, <laughs> with everybody else. <laughs> I guess, you know, I had a, there was a cameo appearance by Gandhi. I guess he was one person I didn't have to <laughs> introduce. His outfit's pretty soft. But even with somebody like, since I mentioned him, John D. Rockefeller II, I still had to, I'm sure that most people would get some inkling of who he was. Yeah. Rockefeller. Uh, but not the founder of the company. And so I would have to explain in the back notes how and why uh, Sanger and, and a Rockefeller were talking to each other, you know, what their relationship was. She, in her um, first publication, Woman, which was called Woman Rebel, it was her fanzine. <laughs> uh, it was her zine. Printed on mimeograph. Yes. Um, she uh, advocated assassinating John D. Rockefeller the second and then they wound up becoming friends well she wound up becoming best friends with his wife but uh, and of course she became friends with him because it turns out he supported her cause mm-hmm. and gave her a lot of money so that kind of solved everything that's one way to get somebody to not want to kill you is by giving her a lot of money <laughs> people should do that more often um, now, Sanger, in particular, you're talking about the uh, birth control rights and, and the lack thereof in, in the States in the early 20th century. Right. And that kind of also jives with your own personal interests, like politically, yeah. as far as people kind of should have self-determination. Yes. Over that. Yes. Is that a good way of putting it? Yes. 
And a while ago, you were asking me how I wound up doing this series. Yes. And uh, I had started doing um, short biographies of various people to amuse myself, like I did in the back of a comic series I did called Apocalypse Nerd. Yeah. I was doing these short little Founding Fathers strips. I think my favorite one was, uh, I forget who it was, that was like shooting cannonballs at the uh, university. Yeah, at Princeton. It was like the yeah. War's over. It's like, I don't Al- care. Alexander Hamilton, yeah. Because uh, they rejected him as a student, they rejected him. And then uh, he heard a rumor while he was in charge of uh, uh, an artillery battalion. He heard a rumor that some runaway British soldiers were hiding in Princeton University's building, just one building at the time. So he was trying to blow them out, trying to smoke them out with cannon fire. And somebody said, stop shooting. Uh, There's nobody in there. The place is empty. And he was like, you never know. But he he literally just wanted to, for rejecting him, he actually blew up (laughs) Princeton University. I love uh, when people can just like, just go with their resentments, just like, just, just right. have a field day with it. Like, sure. sometimes, you know, it's good just to let that go. Right. Well, could you imagine putting yourself in his shoes? It's like, there's a college I really wanted to go to, and they rejected me. And they rejected him for sleazy reasons. He was a bastard, and everybody knew he was a bastard. So that was, like, the real reason he was rejected. Because all, all the Ivy League schools started out as, they were Christian colleges. Um... And so he res- hated and resented him for that reason. And then years later, there you are looking at the building of the school that rejected you. And you have all these cannons. And you're the boss of the cannons. So what would you do? <laughs> but anyhow, um, I also occasionally do these four-page features for Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian magazine. So... Uh, and I started, I had just read a book by a friend of mine named Brian Doherty called Radicals for Capitalism, and uh, which is, had all these uh, collections of s- stories, backstories about all these people that played a hand in the evolution specifically of um, the American libertarian movement. Mm-hmm. And one of the characters was somebody named Isabel Patterson, who was an author and a book critic, a literary critic in the mid 20th century. I guess the 20s and 30s would have been her heyday. Um, and I found her fascinating, so I did a 12-page biography of her. So by then, that was like the longest biographical comic I had done. But while researching her and reading about her... And that was published in Reason. It was in Reason Magazine, yes. Uh, and it's in that book collection that everybody's that stupid. Is. Yeah. Except for you. Except for me. And... Uh, so while I... <laughs> While um, researching Isabel Patterson's life, I was learning more and more about um, particularly women, a lot of women from that era, and realized that Patterson wasn't alone in the way that she was utterly fearless and pretty much did whatever the hell she wanted to do. And this is before second wave feminism, which I found very curious, and I'd read about... uh, other women from that era, and I was mainly interested in other writers, writers and artists from that era. Uh, and, uh, and I became very interested as to why that was, why they were so liberated, why they were so free, why they gave themselves carte blanche to do whatever the hell they wanted. Um, and I've since, now that I'm on my third book, I've read 
a lot of people have addressed that topic. Yeah. And um, well, like even earlier, you mentioned Emma Goldman. Yes. Who, who would fall within that? Yes. Yes. She would even predate all of them a little bit. She was active at the very beginning of the uh, 20th century. You know conspiring to murder somebody who turned out to be middle management <laughs> but they thought he was the industrialist this would be our second uh, murder conspiracy yes but um, well just as an aside something I've been reading a lot about with by people contemporaries who write, who were curious about the same thing that I was was they said after women won the right to vote the prevailing attitude, at least amongst women with careers, is I've got no excuses. I can now do whatever I want. Um, to them, of course, everything is relative, but uh, to them, it was like, we can now do whatever we want. And they operated that way. And they still had to confront and deal with on a daily basis sexism that women wouldn't deal yeah. with so much today. But the way they navigated around it is they... And they, they were, it was so second nature to them that they didn't even discuss it or rarely discussed it. They didn't complain very much about, in fact, they rarely complained about sexism in society, at least as far as uh, saying that it's holding them back, that they can't do what they want because they're a woman. They never talked that way or, or thought that way. They didn't in, in, internalize any of these fears and inhibitions. Uh, it, and it really was how much... It, it's striking how their attitude uh, affected the way they behaved. So, hi. Excuse me, some people are asking if we are going to start soon. Oh, okay. We didn't, weren't sure if people were actually here for this panel. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> now we have to turn the microphones on. Hi. We weren't sure if people were actually here for this panel or just using the seats for the comfort. So, uh, we'll jump into it. Um, I'm Robin. McConnell, I host a local podcast called Ink Studs, and I'm sitting here with uh, my pal, Pete Begg. Hello. Hi. Oh. Hi. Um, apologies again. We just kind of figured people were here for the comfort, and hopefully <laughs> our, uh, our voices will be comforting as well. Yeah. Um, so we're just uh, having our own little conversation here, um, recording it, and we'll kind of expand on it more for you folks is uh, one of the things that, that Pete's been doing is he's doing a series of uh, biographies of different uh, kind of iconoclastic uh, plastic um, feminist icons, uh, the most recent being Fire, the Zora Neale Hurston story. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also another book coming in the spring. Um, and the first one that he did was the Margaret Sanger book, uh, History of Margaret Sanger, um, and so we're wondering about kind of what is it about these women that's kind of important to tell that story and share that now at this point where some of these folks were getting, you know, a hundred years later. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so what he was asking me privately when we had the microphones off was uh, why the women that I'm writing about a hundred years ago roughly uh, gave themselves so much agency, how they had so much freedom and were so fearless. And I was explaining to Robin how uh, 
something I've been reading a lot about by other people who wonder the same question is in 1920 women won the right to vote. So there was a general attitude amongst women that we have no excuses now, we can now do whatever we want. So while they still faced uh, and had to deal with sexist attitudes, they never used that as a reason or excuse not to do something. They kind of just blazed right past it, worked their way right past it. Um, and that, amongst other reasons, that attitude has a lot to do with the people that I'm writing about and why I'm writing about them. And so, with Margaret being your first book, um, was something about her in particular uh, that you wanted to expand upon, was that someone who you maybe had more familiarity with uh, in terms of like the research of like how you're going to do this book? Well, when I first became interested in doing these series of biographies, um, I also noticed that the, it was mainly women authors that I was interested in from this time period. I would, I would say I'm talking about women who were probably at their most active and at their most creative between the two world wars, so the 1920s and 30s. And uh, one thing that these women had in common was they didn't have children. That was one thing, they, which of course allowed them to have far more freedom than if they did have kids. Um, so that got me wondering about what kind of birth control was available back then. For, I, I knew or I understood that it was far more limited than what we have now. So uh, in researching that, my research kept bringing me to Margaret Sanger, who was best known as the founder of, now as the founder of Planned Parenthood. And while I, when I started reading about Sanger, as well as the birth control movement, uh, I became far. I became more interested in her than anyone else. So then I decided I should do a, uh, at least start the series with a book about her. Even though, well, technically she was an author, but not a novelist. And uh, and something that Sanger had in common with the other woman that I'm writing about is uh, she had a very busy life. It almost didn't seem real when I first read about her. Just traveled all over the world, did so much stuff, would get arrested. Uh, just had a crazy life, which lends itself to a graphic novel. You know, it'd be very boring to do a graphic novel about somebody that just spent their lives typing, sitting at a <laughs> typewriter. You need people who move around a little bit, so. I forget, uh, someone's telling me the, to Eddie Campbell, where you make sure on a page that you have a certain amount of different types of action just so it doesn't get boring in case you're doing a situation where someone is really boring. Right. Well, yeah, that's a problem with comics. Unless you're doing superhero comics, <laughs> I guess, or fantasy comics. Well, even then you have that problem uh, of how can I make this more interesting than just two people sitting and talking, you know, and something that's static. There's something that, uh, there's a sheet of paper that people used to mimeograph constantly and pass around. And it was by, it was drawn by an artist from uh, whose heyday was the 50s named Wally Wood. And it was all these hints as to how to make boring scenes more interesting. How to use silhouettes and da you know all these uh, cinematic angles to make it look really dramatic uh, and really intense, even though all you're looking at is one or two people talking. And so it was, it was a whole page full of tips. You know, try it this way. Have like the door just open a crack and you just see one person talking through the cracked door or through a window and lots of silhouettes and lots of these weird angles all tips on how to make a boring scene visually interesting 
22 panels that always work. Oh, is that what that is called? Yeah. Okay. That was Wally Wood, right? I was yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know a lot of people that still, uh, David Lasky went into his studio. He has that big up on his wall. Dave Lasky should try using it. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps forgetting to look at it. Oh, David. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's the sweetest guy. Um, so the, the second book in the series, the one that came out two years ago? Or yes. last year? This one, Fire by Shoner Hurston. Yeah, this is my last one. Yeah, it came out uh, two and a half years ago. Um, extensive research into it. Yeah, with all, I've just finished a third one, though it won't be out until April. But yeah, all three of them took me three years to do, with one year of solid research. And still, even the most painful thing is even after the book comes out, I'm learning new things or learning that some of the information I put in the book is faulty. So, uh, yeah, you never can learn quite enough. Do you work with any um, knowledgeable editors on any of these books that kind of, so you're not so in a bubble? Like experts? Yes, uh, experts. Uh, uh, yeah. um, with Sanger, I, oddly, I don't think I contacted anybody that was an expert on her. And there, there were plenty of, um, plenty of biographies about her. I just had a, I don't know, for some reason, I just had a sense that the people that had written books about Sanger wouldn't want to talk to me or they'd think a comic book about her would be silly. Um, but with uh, Hurston, I did, I, I talked at length with a, a couple, uh, two scholars who teach in, in the South and they had written quite a bit about Hurston. But it, I learned a lot more from their essays about Hurston than I did from talking to her. Mm -hmm. With uh, Rosaline, I've the, the, um, the current person I'm writing about is her name is Rose Wilder Lane, and uh, she also is a writer. And she, unfortunately, she's best known as uh, the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote the Little House books. And Rose Wilder Lane actually secretly co-wrote the Little House books with her mother. And uh, the the background the information I was coming across with her was very conflicting. Uh, a lot of people had very different takes on her, or they still do. Mm -hmm. And and there was lots of, uh, there were a lot of big questions about her that nobody ever addressed in any of her biographies. Like one is when you're reading about her and reading excerpts from her diaries and excerpts from uh, her personal correspondences, without her flat out saying it, you really can't shake this feeling that she was bisexual, for example, that she that she had rela sexual relationships with some of her female friends. But nobody would ever say so in print. So I contacted some people, you know, including biographers, but also people who were heavily involved in the world of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the little house world. And everybody <laughs> I talked to privately, they said, oh yeah, she was bisexual. She definitely had female lovers, definitely. And I said, why doesn't anybody say so in print? And they're like, because there's no proof. Mm. But that doesn't stop people from speculating about a lot of other things in her life. I don't know why everybody feels like that's the third rail. But even I was too nervous to address that in the comic itself, but I talk about it in the footnotes, no, which is literally the first time anybody says, said this in print about Rose Wilderlene. Yeah. I wonder, like, um, I think you mentioned even in the Hurston one where folks have different kind of political agendas with her representation of like how certain things align with what different people are saying and so how that affects someone's 
kind of how they're biographied, biographied, right? Um, and how that stories are told. So people um, want something out of a person that reflects their own agenda. Yes, yes. Everybody's got an agenda, including me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like, for example, uh, Zori Neale Hurston. Uh, part of, besides her being a fantastic writer, part of what appealed to me about her is just her her philosophy, her political uh, worldview, mm-hmm. her life philosophy. I strongly related to. She was very much a libertarian, and so am I. And uh, and and I made that clear in the book. Whereas other people, there are a lot of people who love Zora Hurston, but they might not share that political worldview, so they kind of block it out. Yeah. You know, they just kind of, by not talking about it, they kind of pretend that, no, she wasn't a libertarian because I don't like those people. <laughs> so I'm just going to pretend my favorite author wasn't that. And, it, and, it's, and it's even more so with the woman that I'm writing about now. is Rose Roger Lane, as a youth, she was a socialist, and then she evolved into what past libertarianism and was pretty much an anarchist. She hated. She was anti-government completely, and uh, and it's for, and she was quite vocal about it towards the end of her life. And you and you get a strong sense of that in the Little House books, for example. Um, and uh, so over the last, I would say, last five ten years, there's been a lot of articles, and now there's a new biography out about primarily about her mother, about Laura Ingalls Wilder. And there's a lot of writers who have are. Politically, they're very strong left. They're very progressive, very left-wing, and uh, and when they write, it, it, but they grew up loving the Little House books. Yeah. So they're for their own sake, they're trying to resolve how they could have loved this book written by not just one but two women who have a political worldview that they don't share. And uh, in pretty much what all of these authors have done in the, recently when trying to resolve that conundrum is to completely throw the daughter under the bus. The woman I'm writing about, they just trash her. And it, it, they're incredibly unfair to her. So this, again, this woman, I'm, my new book, Rose Wilder Lane, she's very easy to make fun of, and I do plenty of that in the book. She was bipolar. Uh, she was a total drama queen, uh, you know, prone to crying jags and, and laying She's in... The, the Kanye of... Um, yeah, she was Kanye. Of melodramatic, right, uh, prairie-based right. uh, literature. Yeah, but the same... But then meanwhile, these women who are... Uh, these writers who are trashing her and trying to diminish her political opinions, part of it is, well, she was bipolar. Who, so why should we take her seriously? And it's like, well, that's a horrible thing to say. Lots of people are bipolar or suffer from clinical depression should we just ignore all of their opinions <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah which has been an issue of, it's funny that you mentioned it with Kanye with people poo-pooing it because he got mental health it's like, oh so you're going right back to stigmatizing of having mental health issues well the funny thing about the 13th amendment <laughs> is uh, that Kanye is going on about there is something in there that is bad though Yes, and he was right, but he should, and he didn't make that clear. And he was right, which was that it allowed for, the way the Thirteenth Amendment was written is that it allowed under certain conditions for to still practice slave labor, which is what prisons do. Yeah. So he's fighting for social justice reform, which I think is great. I've never was a Kanye fan. I never thought I'd be 
go Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. And, uh, you know, but mainly people, the real reason that everybody's making fun of them is because of Trump. They yeah. hate Trump so much that they're completely ignoring the fact that these two people are, have the president's ear for a good cause. This is a, don't, why are you looking at a gift horse in the mouth? You know, this is a good thing. Yeah. You know? Oh, well. <laughs> I'm sure this will be a future Reason article. <laughs> yes, possibly. <laughs> That's something I try really hard to, I've yet to draw, since he's been president, I haven't drawn Trump. I try to, I try to pretend he doesn't, because <laughs> it's not, it, it's not productive, because no. it gets so personal, you know, it, it's, it, it just, it makes everybody so crazy that, I know this sounds corny, and make, how you feel about him personally, all of a sudden the issues at stake get buried, you know, it becomes all about him and it shouldn't be all about him. You know, so nothing gets done. I um, I feel for the complexities of the madness south of the border. Oh. Um, one thing I remember Ralph Steadman saying years ago um, is uh, he stopped doing portraits of politicians. Uh, he did ma many amazing ones. There's one where basically uh, Richard Nixon was talking into a mic with his ass um, but he stopped doing it because he didn't want to give that figurehead power right and I thought that was a really interesting take on uh, same with me I'm, I've been, I was um, con when Bush was president I in my reason work I not constantly but I would frequently withdraw him always make him look utterly foolish that old uh, that's the, the thing too that I realized that a lot of when people are doing political, cartoons that somebody that you, whose policies you don't agree with, you portray them to look simultaneously stupid and evil. You always make them look, they make them look like a dunce while they're doing something or saying something utterly abhorrent. And yeah, it's, it's polarizing and it, it solves nothing. So I'm totally with Ralph Stidman. It's like I try, I totally try to avoid drawing actual politicians for that, roughly for that same reason. It's counterproductive. I, um, there was an Anthony Bourdain episode where he visits Stedman and he somehow talked him into drawing Trump. And it was painful. You could see that Stedman did not want to do that. Like, he's just like... Well, why was Bourdain making him do it? He's just, you know, he's charismatic and wants, you know, something. But it's like, to me, it's like you're pushing an artist to do something that's not... Right. And it kind of also boils him down into uh, who he was in 1971. Right, right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there's that. Moving on. Yes. <laughs> um, while you've been doing these books, uh, you've also been doing variant covers recently. And I'm wondering about how that kind of balances for you to be able to just kind of keep the hand moving and not occupying the brain. Yeah, I did, well, I did a bunch of variant covers for that publisher called Variant. Valiant. So, Valiant. Variant. <laughs> Valiant. <laughs> And I, I never read a Valiant comic. They just offered me good money to do these Valiant covers for Valiant. So I'm doing it for the money. But it's lots of fun. It's easy to do. It's really fun. Their characters are all... I mean, it's like superhero, superhero-ish. Yeah. And uh, and they're all ridiculous, you know? So it's like, it's a, so it's kind of... It's like, okay, well, what's this character do? Or what are these two guys Blood about? Shot. Yeah, and they'll tell me. And I'm like, okay, that's... Totally ridiculous. Ninjack. I loved reading nin ninja. 
Ninjak is a guy who, uh, <laughs> during his day job, is like a James Bond type character. And then at night, he turns into a ninja. <laughs> so when he's normal, he's James Bond. And the rest of the time, he's a ninja warrior. Which I was like, that is good. Did a 10-year-old make up this character? <laughs> a brilliant 10-year-old. I think but, it's the uh, man that now runs Marvel Comics. Oh, is it? <laughs> uh, yeah. They were old. Yeah, that was Jim Shooter's company, Valiant, back in the 90s. And then they went dormant, and now they're back. Yeah. Bunch of uh, investors. And, and some, I went to a, my local comic shop in Tacoma, and then uh, on the new releases shelves... I noticed they had all the Valiant titles on one shelf. They were all in a row. And I said, uh, why do you, instead of like what most stores do, where all the new releases are in alphabetical order, why do you have that publisher just all in a row? And the owner said, because fans of Valiant comics, that imprint, they buy every single Valiant title, and they won't buy a single other comic book. Yeah. It's utter, total, it's like a brand, their favorite brand of cigarettes. And it's like leftover from like 25 years ago. Yes, and that's all they buy. And they won't even look at any other title by any other publisher. It's just make mine valiant, literally, <laughs> which I found fascinating. It's good for you. Yeah. The variants. Um, I was thinking a bunch, uh, kind of mulling over things for the last couple of days, uh, prepping for this. And I make my really sloppy notes that are completely indecipherable to anyone but me. Um, and one thing I was thinking about is um, I want to talk about Buddy Bradley for a second. Is the age of Buddy Bradley over? Yeah, probably. I couldn't. I can't think of a reason why I would do more Buddy Bradley comics. I don't want to rule it out. I might suddenly get very inspired. But yeah, I can't. Right now, I don't see a reason to go but to go back to that. And there's not there's not some huge commercial demand for me to do so either. But I, part of it is also feeling like the world that Buddy lived in. Can we go back there at this point in America? <laughs> like, I just I don't imagine like what New Jersey would be like for Buddy Bradley now. Oh, damn. I well, do you mean like should I do new? Oh, are you talking about like like Buddy Bradley's neighbor with a MAGA hat? Are you talking about? Uh, Okay, so you're talking about um, me doing new Buddy Bradley comics, and it's taking a pl- taking place right now. I just, I, I just don't like. I see like like I kind of agree like Buddy's kind of in the past, and I just don't want to imagine what it would be like trying to kind of reconcile Buddy right with well, modern I, America. With the the last bunch of comics I did about Buddy Bradley, which appeared in that Hate Annuals, the Hate Annuals stories, I had him becoming more and more. Not so much a recluse, but very much his own man. He was living in his own... He was making this weird little bubble for himself, making himself more and more of an outcast, but not in some contrived way, not like, a, like I'm a goth now. Yeah. He turned him into a scrap metal dealer. <laughs> so, um, and I would imagine it would just be more so, so much more so that I couldn't imagine making stories about him. You know, I, I just keep seeing him being completely shut off <laughs> with, uh, or trying to shut himself off from what's going on in the world. Is that something you think about with uh, your other works too, is finding ways to that, that people want to escape from reality? 
like well, no with my work yeah like with like the second life uh even apocalypse nerd in a way oh oh i see you mean we're like writing about people who are trying to do that yeah like i'm not saying you're trying to escape from reality because yeah you delve into it with your reason work right well but, i would say the only i think that graphic novel you just mentioned other lives is the only one that dealt specifically with that it was very much about people who didn't want to be themselves. And that wasn't even true with all of the characters, but two of, there were like four principal characters, and two of them really did not want to be themselves for various reasons, you know. One always was somewhat deluded, and the other one was just somebody who, was, who pretty much had a nice normal life, and just mainly because of gambling, it all he lost everything, it all fell apart. You know, so for that reason, he just lived in a, wanted to live in a fantasy world. But, um, but the, you know, it's like I did another graphic novel called Reset, and that was also about, uh, it was vaguely sci-fi, where there was this technology where you could at least experience this alternate reality of living your life over again and choosing different options and see what would happen if you chose different options. But the main character who was doing that, he largely was doing that reluctantly. He wasn't diving right in to... Uh, uh, it wasn't like he was dying to relive his life. It wasn't important to him. Although he did get caught up in it. It made him think a lot more about uh, um, the choices he did make, but, but also uh, where the other people in his life were coming from. So, no. <laughs> um, there goes your thesis. Give up. <laughs> He's scratching out all those questions. <laughs> Are we done? Um, uh, earlier, you actually you were showing me a book that's coming out in one day when it's done soon. Early next year. Uh, the uh, book about Weirdo magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with Weirdo. Um, Peter was the third editor on it. Second. Second editor. So Robert Crumb started this magazine of kind of post-underground uh, early 1980s, new wavy, weird, called Weirdo, and it was basically uh, an area for anyone to come in with the oddest, freakiest comics, um, but not in the same way like where the undergrounds were like, how could it be as offensive as possible? Weirdo was actually just more weird? Yes, yes. Uh, so so it, was a, it was a comic anthology that lasted all through the 1980s, and... Uh, its counterpart was another magazine that is far more well-known and well-respected called Raw. So it was a little, at least when it started out, it was a bit like, it could be described as the anti-Raw. Although I'm sure the same people bought both magazines. And they people were, were in both magazines. Yeah, yeah. especially <laughs> over time, almost, it was almost all the same artists. Towards the end, they turned into the same magazine. Um, but uh, it's weirdo, unfortunately, it become rather forgotten. Um, I kept waiting. I remember when uh, I started working on it, three years in, I was helping Robert Crumb edit the magazine, and I was complaining to him about uh, how this seems so thankless. The money stinks. The people who write to us, all they do is complain about everything we do, second-guess everything we do. It's utterly thankless. And to encourage me, Crumb said, don't worry, Pete. One day people will be throwing accolades 
at our feet. They'll be, we'll get so much praise for doing a weirdo. It's like, you think? And then three decades later, nothing. No one said anything. Except now, finally, there's a great, big, very detailed book coming out all about the history of weirdo and profiles. Pretty, the author tried to contact literally every single person that ever contributed to the magazine. Even letters writers, he tried to track down. Wow. Yeah. Did you guys have like a lot of people from prison writing in? Um, no, not necessarily. Okay. I got I got more letters from prison from people in prison when I was doing hate. Okay. Yeah, a lot of hate fans in prison. <laughs> <laughs> you were still relatively new to comics at that point too, doing. Working with Crumb? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, so, that's kind of like baptism I, by fire. Yeah, it was. It was a little bit scary, but um, I'm glad I did it. Wouldn't want to do something like that again, of course, but uh, yeah, I learned an awful lot. And working with Robert Crumb was great. Uh, people think he's, well, he is a weird man, and he can be antisocial, but uh, he was, he was, uh, very considerate and very helpful when I was working for him. How I, many issues were you the kind of sole editor on? Each one, uh, Robert Crumb did the first nine, and then I wound up editing nine issues, and then Robert Crumb's wife, Aileen Crumb, edited nine. Oh, okay. She was the last one. So we all did nine issues. Aileen might have done ten. It was like this last one that was, they moved to France, so she called it Vieux Abdul. <laughs> and, uh, but that might have, she might have just changed the title. That might have been the, her ninth issue as well. I can't remember now. It's all right. It's, it, for me, there's a lot of neat stuff. And I don't know if it was on your run or Aline's run where there's that Carol Tyler back cover, which is like... Where the, she's pregnant? Yeah, like the anatomy of a new mom. Oh, a new mom. That's right. Yeah, yes. Oh, and you like that one? Yeah. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. Was that on your run or was that on Aline's? I can't, you know, I can't remember if I used that as a back cover or... or it, Aileen did. I think I'm. I, I honestly can't remember now. <laughs> I seem to. Rem- I think it was me. If it wasn't me, then I passed it on to Aileen when she took over. Um, there's something about that particular image which I think is like one of the most powerful. Yes. Of that time and kind he, of. He's talking about a drawing that one cartoonist did, where she it was a drawing of herself and she's a new mom, and it just shows her holding this screaming, pooping baby, and she's hasn't got any sleep. So there's all these tags pointing at her. And, and I remember, I know this will sound very male-centric of me, but I remember uh, right above her crotch had one of those no signs. Yeah. And she was then there saying no go zone, meaning no sex. And I remember when I, when I first saw that, I felt really bad for her husband. That's all I could think of. She's like totally beaten. Her nipples are a bit bitten by the baby. She's just a total mess. And all I could think of was her poor husband. <laughs> I like to think you've gotten a little more uh, elevated since then, Pete. No. <laughs> it's, still, it's still the first thing I think. <laughs> um, did you do any revisiting of that past work um, while the book was being put together, or have you been kind of hands-off? Well, this book has actually been in the works for over 10 years. Oh, wow. So, uh, and he interviewed, started interviewing me for probably more than 10 years ago. And uh, so I can't even remember the interviews I did that appear in the book. I can't even <laughs> remember saying these words. 
And, uh, and I'm, talking about, I'm talking about issues that I don't even remember, arguments or disagreements I had with contributors, and I'm like, totally forgot this. I don't know, I don't know what I'm talking about in this book. <laughs> so this is even another degree Yes. <laughs> yes. Love it. Um, so in the future, you've got the, the next in the Drawing Quarterly series. Any humor stuff we have coming from you? Uh, I did something a while ago for Mad Magazine for the first time in ages, and my dupes more for them. I'm, I, I, I just finished another four-page feature for a reason, and um, if they'll let me, I'd like to do a lot more. I want to start doing more. But I, I kind of, because of all that Trump business that we were just talking about and how personal politics have become, you know, personality-driven, yeah. that uh, I became uninspired. But now uh, it's actually helped me. It's actually inspired me when I think about what we were just talking about, completely avoiding politicians yeah. or household name politicians and just deal, delve into issues and how it's affecting people, you know, in the fringes of society, basically. Well, and you've kind of done a little bit about that with your move to Tacoma. Pete uh, living in Seattle for many, many years, and now you're in Tacoma and uh, getting kind of acquainted with the more particularities of the politics there? Yes, I did, well I did one specifically about living in a city like Tacoma and and, I, and being very self-conscious of what differences there are between a smaller blue collar town like that compared to Seattle where I just moved away from. And then I did one uh, trying to get to the bottom of uh, the issue and the hysteria around sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. and interviewed a lot of people about that. I had a very hard time, almost impossible time, and certainly nobody would talk on the record, uh, people who are promoting, who are, are actively pushing the idea that sex trafficking is something that is happening on a major scale. They wouldn't, those people would not talk to me. Did you talk to Chester Brown about that after mm, No, no. Have you? No, I've talked about that subject, of, because it has a... It, has, it does have everything to do with the legal status of prostitution. So the people who are, who are pushing this idea that sex trafficking is out of control, their real agenda is to go after prostitutes or prostitution, johns, pimps. Yeah. Um, in spite of the fact that thanks to the internet, prostitutes, sex pimps workers... Are work. they, well, they didn't need them anymore. Yeah. You know, but now because of shutting... Because of new law, FOSTA, FOSTA. Uh, it's driving uh, the women out in the streets again and putting them in danger again, and now they need protection again, um, whereas hardly any of them were using pimps. And the ones that you did see on the street, when you drive down the seedy street in your neighborhood and you see the, the street walkers, those women would be doing that, almost all of them are paying for a drug habit. And, so, and they, don't even, they didn't even necessarily plan to be walking the street that day. They just suddenly need... They needed money for a hit, and that's why they're out there. But uh, most call girls are, have nothing in common with those women other than the fact that they are, they're all prostitutes. But most of them just sit at home, and they would take out ads, so just have a list on Craigslist or Backpage, which has now been taken down. And they were perfectly safe. You know, they would, if, if they went somewhere, if a client pulled up in his car, or even you know, just getting out of the car or her getting into the car, she would always take a picture of the license plate and send it to her friend. So yeah. it's like, if you don't hear from me again, here's the guy. Uh, and it worked. They would tell him, too. I took a picture of your license plate. 
Yeah, and they and there were sites where they could vet. They would compare each other. So if one guy is a little has a reputation for being too rough, you know, of like not backing down when they want them to, they would tell everybody. Yeah. They they would tell everybody what unless you don't mind really rough stuff, watch out for this guy. He doesn't pay attention to safe words. And all of a sudden that guy can't hire yeah. anybody anymore. And the opposite was happening too, where the clients, the Johns, would also rate uh, uh, the sex workers. Their biggest complaint, which I thought I always thought the same thing, their biggest complaint was always when they'd have an ad and there'd be a photo there, they'd go, that's not her. <laughs> that's not her picture. She doesn't look anything like that. <laughs> you uh, went to Cuba recently. Yeah, early and last year. Did you ever year. expect to go? No, I was just they, the editors of Reason had for some reason arranged a junket to go to. Uh, they had put together a trip to go to uh, Cuba, and two of the editors thought to invite me along, hoping I would do a comic about it. Yeah, and of course it was very interesting, very different from the United States. That's for sure. But uh, not impressed with the place, though. You know. It's, it's, uh, it's very polluted. Lots of racism. People always yeah. pretend that racism, that socialism or racist racism. It does not. Everybody that had a decent job was white and everybody that had a crappy job was black. Lots of people who seemed to be homeless, you know, I guess they had a roof over the head, but there's a lot of people who looked and acted like they were homeless and were constantly panhandling. I guess they could tell a foreigner from a mile away, but whenever I walked away from where we were being, the tour guide would be steering us. We just took a left somewhere, there's all these hands would come out. Yeah. You know, even the dogs were kind of like... <laughs> and yeah, lots of starving dogs walking all over the place. It was all, and really polluted. It was filthy. It's all the old cars. Um, well, for example, I, I went to... Uh, there's a lot of people, not just uh, native-born Cubans, but even foreigners, uh, who are making actually a very good living as artists. Because at some point uh, in the last... Well, sometime in the 90s, when they were having a severe economic crisis because they lost, they, they lost their sugar daddy in the form of the Soviet Union, uh, they suddenly realized we should uh, not tax artists and so that the artists would stay and they could sell their work to foreigners. And then if they stayed here, they still would be spending money here yeah. on food, clothing, and shelter. And, and not only that, they allow, artists are actually allowed to buy their house because it's a communist country, everything is state-owned. But artists are actually allowed to, they're supposed to, they're allowed to buy the building that they work in, but almost all of them live in that building. And they had really nice houses. They weren't paying taxes. And uh, they uh, were making really good money selling to foreigners. And uh, they were, a lot of them were living, we I went to this one woman's house. She was an American. She was an American to take advantage of this, and she was making great money. Her house was a dream house, and I noticed it was just a block away from the ocean. So after I, I thought her art was a bit boring. It was it was the type of stuff that would sell. It was like ceramics, but it had no content. Yeah, you know, it was decoration. And again, like I said, she was cleaning up, but uh, it was decorative art, and it's like okay, very pretty. You know, something that you buy for your grandma. And people who were on the tour I was with, they were all buying something for grandma from this woman. And But I saw the beach was really close, so I walked over to the beach. And uh, with, and I, somebody else I was with, they were like, yeah, let's go take a look. And uh, the water was all, like, 
the plastic containers, those gallon containers that milk comes in. Yeah. It was like all these plastic containers were all clumped up and right pressed against the waves where you couldn't dive into the water without diving into plastic. There was nowhere. Wow. There's nowhere to go into the water without diving into all this gar- like floating garbage. 90s. And also, it's like somebody's working on a project. You know, if some construction works on a project, they have some excess asphalt. They literally just dump it on the beach. So this, it was a sandy beach. It was a real beach, but it'd be big, huge clumps of asphalt that were just and with garbage mixed in with it, garbage trapped in it. Right. It couldn't be more disgusting. It couldn't, and this, uh, from a distance, from a block away, we thought it was a beautiful beach. We saw all the waves and the palm trees, and then we get there, it was a dump. <laughs> and, uh, you know, children could have been swimming there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There's probably a lot of money that's going to be pouring into those beaches real soon. Well, yeah, eventually. Not yet, though. Um, thank you all for coming and joining me and Pete today. Yes. Uh, I don't know what's going on next. Something. Oh, here? Yeah. We have no idea. We have no idea. Uh, I'm Pete, sure it'll be thrilling. Pete's table is just pretty much go directly that way. As, as far off in the corner as you could get. All the way in the back. <laughs> near the ATMs. So, all right. Thank, thank you. Thank you.